recordings, everything's ready to roll. So Lord, we pray tonight in Jesus' name, we just come to you. I'm asking you, Lord, let there be a tremendous anointing on your word. We love your word. As I say all the time, where would we be today without the word of the Lord? Thank you, Lord, so much that you've given us something that we can study and keep ourselves anchored in truth. You know, it would be a horrendous thing if we didn't have the word of God today. And I just want to take a moment to thank you for that, that you've given that to us. But Lord, I pray that you would anoint me like never before and speak through me your words of life, that they would be living seeds of truth sown in a good fertile soil, watered by the Holy Spirit, and take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains, a sword that cuts away what needs to go, a hammer that breaks down the strongholds, deception of the enemy, that breaks down all those works, destroy it, that's of the devil, a light that shines and dispels all the darkness, the lies, the deception of the evil one, and brings truth and revelation. Let your word go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. We thank you for your word. We bless you, Lord. And thank you for lives that are transformed. Water those seeds in people and let them grow into a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains in every life, every hearer. Knowing our eyes and ears, give us eyes and ears to the spirit and our hearts and minds in tune with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so I'm going to preach the word tonight, but let me give you a couple of prophetic things that people have seen. We had a, a couple prophetic people in our church that have seen, and really you need to hear this because it might apply to you, but they've seen that the church as a whole going from the outer court into the holy place, as I've been saying, going deeper into the presence of God. But yet there's people that have iniquity and sin in their lives that aren't right that in actual fact won't be going into the holy place. And they saw that there's people that their garments were dirty and God had to keep them out of the holy place. Did you know that everybody around you can go deeper in God and you not go? Isn't that something? You know, God can move in a church service and hit everybody around an individual, but that person still miss out what God has for them. That's sad, isn't it? And because of iniquity and things in people, they've seen that there's people that are not going to be going into the holy place. And I believe in my heart, I really feel that God's about to take his sword. And I keep feeling this very strongly. It's a warning. Maybe if there's repentance real quick and it's real, maybe it'll prevent it, but they're about to be cut out. And I mean out of the church, but also possibly cut out. Listen, you can cut yourself off from God, you know, if you're playing games and living in sin. And I don't know about you, but I want to stay close to Jesus and live the life. All right, so I'm going to be dealing with tonight a burden for the lost. We've established in the past, I've been dealing with this, I've been preaching about revival, and I talked about in open heaven, I talked about how intercession, I, I've dealt with intercession probably in every single service, but intercession is the key, and I'll deal with some different aspects of that tonight, but I talked about intercession, the groaning and the travailing that gives birth to revival, and then I also talked about um, last week about making sure that we are on fire for God. You know, that's something that only God can do in us, but we've got to really go after him. You know, salvation is a free gift. And as far as being baptized in the Holy Spirit, you know, you're clothed in power, speaking tongues, being baptized in the Holy Spirit, that's a free gift. But whenever the, the parable of the wise virgins was spoken, all 10 of them were virgins. And all 10 of them had lamps. 
and 10 is the number in that culture that constitutes a church. It's talking about God's people, okay? They weren't five virgins, five harlots. All of them were virgins. They, they were God's people, but five of them wise and five foolish. But the five foolish said to the wise, because they had extra oil, say, give us some of your oil because the bridegroom's coming and we're not ready. Give us some of your oil. And the wise ones turned to the foolish and said, no, you go buy some for yourself. So I said that to make this point. Salvation is free. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is free, but getting extra oil is not free. It will cost you. That's why Jesus taught that the wise said to the foolish, no, you go buy some for yourself. People have got to make the effort to go after God. You know, you've got to make the effort to go to church. You've got to make the effort to pray. If you want to go deeper in God, if you're sitting back in your lazy boy watching TV going, well, God, take me deeper, and you make no effort on your part, that's a foolish virgin. It's not going to happen. You've got to get alone and pursue him. There's, there is a cost to getting extra oil. Does this make sense? And so when we're talking about revival, oh, man, there is a tremendous price for revival, tremendous price. And I want revival. I believe God's going to bring, and already has, but I believe he'll bring more people that want revival to be around me. But there is a price. There is a price in intercession. There is a price of really consecrating yourself unto God. There, there is a price for revival to go after God and, and keep going after him with all your heart until he comes down and brings revival. But then once revival comes, there's still a price to be paid because revival is taxing. It's taxing on people because you have to have more church services to accommodate the people. You've got to spend hours praying for all these people that need prayer. And that is the price of revival, but it is extremely rewarding in this life and rewarding in the life to come. And how many knows that no matter what the price is for revival, it is worth it to have revival. It's worth it to have his presence and to see Jesus coming down and saving people, I mean, out of the darkest things you can imagine, to see him come down and healing people, to see him come down and delivering people out of bondages and, and changing lives and healing families and coming in an awesome way. Like, it's worth it. It's worth it to me. There's some people, though, that don't want revival. And uh, I believe with all my heart that there's, there's always going to be people that really want God to come. They really want revival, and they're willing to pay the price for it. But there's also always going to be people that don't. And the two will not be able to walk together. <laughs> Was it the book of Amos that says, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? Those two cannot walk together. Okay, so God's going to have to bring people that have this mentality of it is, it's worth it. It's worth it. Every revival that, that is broken out, it's always come sovereign and supernatural once they got the breakthrough. And then it was like, oh my goodness. Look at all these people getting saved. Look at all this stuff going on. And they had to, you know, jump into action as far as discipleship and things like that. I want to be as ready as we can be. I don't believe that we're ever going to be completely, totally ready because there's a couple reasons. I think the first reason is, is that God wants us to live by faith. Wouldn't it be nice if everything was just laid out, you know? You didn't have to step out in such radical faith about things. It'd be so much easier. But God wants us to totally trust him, you know, 
and step out there and just believe him. And so he's not going to lay it all out for us so simple. There is an aspect of just trusting him. But then also because when revival comes, it's going to be bigger than what we could actually imagine and bigger than what we could have prepared for in the natural. So we need his grace. Do you see what I mean? We need, we got to have faith just to trust him. But we've also got to have his grace to be able to be sustained. So, I mean, we can prepare ourselves some, but I don't think we'll ever be able to totally prepare for his visitation. I mean, it's just so amazing. Hopefully that makes sense. We can do what we can do, but God is God. And when he comes, everything's going to change. And what are you going to do? How are you going to prepare for Jesus walking in the room? Really? Come on. How are you really going to prepare? When he comes in, everything's going to change. It's going to be sovereign and supernatural and radical. You've just got to just ride the wave and hold on. I heard one guy that was in revival say, man, he said, you know, some of the critics criticize, but he said, it is like riding a bull. I mean, he's, you're hanging on for dear life. <laughs> I just laughed. He said, it's like riding a bull, man. You're just, you don't feel like you're in complete control. You're just hanging on for dear life and going for it. That's revival. So we established last week that man has a free will and God will never violate that free will. People have a free will to accept Christ, but they also have a free will to reject Christ and to walk away from Christ. That's why I have such a major problem with some of the teaching out there because God does not take away people's free will just because they become a Christian you still have a free will. You don't become Christian robots that is mindless and you just blindly follow like a moth to a flame. No, God has actually given us a free will that we can make a decision to stay with Christ or we can make a decision to walk away from him. And I don't believe that God will ever take away our free will. So that needs to be understood up front in revival that we're not here trying to manipulate or control anybody. And we're not here to, to try to preach false doctrine. We're just going to give people the gospel. And some will accept it. Some will reject it. That's up to God. That's between them and God. And when they come into the faith, they still have a choice to walk with Jesus or to abandon the faith. That's between them and God. All we're going to do is preach the gospel. But people remain to have a choice even in salvation to stay with the Lord or reject the Lord that's important that y'all understand that because the Bible says that there's going to be some that their names are blotted out of the Lamb's book of life there's going to be some that abandon the faith there's going to be some that fall away these are all references to people that were in church so my job as a pastor is to help preach the truth and let the power of the Holy Spirit come in and help people to stay on that path the path the Bible calls the path of life, the path of righteousness, the path of truth. On that path, it's called a highway of holiness. There's a river of the, the Holy Spirit flowing, Isaiah 35, but there is a path. I'm going somewhere with this. You read all through scripture, and there's a lot of references to a path. Jesus said it's a narrow path, and there's few that find it. Now, there's a broad multi-lane highway over here and there's a lot of people that find that and go straight to hell it leads to destruction but there's a narrow path that leads to life and it's my responsibility to preach that path narrow and preach the truth 
and try to help people get on that path and stay on that path. In 1 Timothy 4.1, I know you guys know this scripture I've talked about last week with seducing spirits, but the spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, we're living in the latter times. You can understand that some of these scriptures, people a thousand years ago might have read these and might have preached them 200 years ago to congregations, but we're living in it now. So there's scriptures that really stand out to this generation because we're actually living these scriptures today. This is one of them. He says, in the latter times, we're in the latter times right now. So this scripture is a prophecy. The apostle Paul was shooting this prophecy. 2,000 years, it's a 2,000 year old arrow. Boom, he launched it, okay? Went through the, through the time, the hourglass, okay? Shot through time and is landed in our generation. He says this, last day church, I'm just kind of paraphrasing this from the apostle Paul. Because I believe if he was here, he would tell you, I prophesied to you. I was speaking to you. That the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit told Paul that in the last days, there would be some people that would fall away or abandon the faith. They would listen to deceitful, seducing spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars with a seared conscience their consciences have been seared so here it is hypocrites that don't really live the life they say one thing out of their mouth but they live a different life they themselves are searing their own conscience where they no longer feel convicted they can sit in the presence of the holy spirit and not really feel convicted because their heart has become so hardened because they keep going back to sin they're a hypocrite and the bible prophesied that there would be these hypocrites in the last days their consciences would be seared and they would listen to doctrines of demons doctrines of demons are, are doctrines that tell people that you can live in sin and still go to heaven when you die that's a doctrine of a demon if you've believed that you've been listening to demons you need to go back to the word of God and listen to men of God that know what they're talking about and quit listening to deceiving, seducing spirits that are trying to tell you, no, you can live a double life. That's what a demon would tell somebody. No, you're fine. You can go to church and, you know, get up there and worship, go down and get prayer and then go out and live in sin. That's totally fine. It's not fine with God. And Paul prophesied that in the last days there would be people that would fall away. They would abandon the faith because of seducing spirits that taught them that they could live in sin and still be a Christian and everything would be okay. And we're living in a time when we're seeing a lot of weird doctrines like that. There's, there's people that want to preach a hyper grace message. Here's my theory about that. If you're in a situation where you can tell somebody that they're concerned about their salvation, you could make them feel reassured or you can cause them to kind of question things. I always lean toward this. You better make sure for yourself. Don't give people a false sense of security if they're not right with God. Always tell people, listen, you make sure for yourself. Make sure. You, you examine yourself. 
Because that's what the Bible said. Paul told that, what was it, Corinthians, I believe, 2 Corinthians, he said, you examine yourself and make sure you're in the faith if you pass the test. And doesn't the Bible say in Romans, I believe, chapter 8, that the Holy Spirit is the one that bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God? So truthfully, it's really not my job to be telling people that they're saved, is it? It's my job to be telling people to repent. It's actually the Holy Spirit's job to tell people they're saved. Nobody has to go around telling me I'm saved because I know. Why do I know? Because the Holy Spirit has shown me and told me that I'm a child of God. I, he has borne witness in my spirit. I don't need somebody to tell me I'm saved. And I would laugh at somebody that told me I wasn't. Because the Holy Spirit done told me that I'm saved. Amen? So, as a minister, I try to be careful to always tell people, you better examine yourself and make sure. If you're not sure, then you need to get sure. You need to get alone with God. Write down the things in your life you need to repent of. Pray to Jesus and get that reassurance in your spirit, in your heart, that you're a child of God and that you're right with God. And repent, you know, repent of your sin. In 2 Corinthians 2, verse 3, it says, Let no one deceive you in any way. We're talking about the Lord's coming. He said, The Lord's coming will not come unless the apostasy, the falling away comes first. And the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction. So before the Lord's coming, the Apostle Paul, here, he launches another arrow through time. It's launched, okay? There it goes. It's going, and it's going down through the years, and it's landing in our generation today. And he said, let no one deceive you. Jesus will not come until there is a falling away that people that are in the church, in the faith, some of them will fall away and then there's going to be the rise of the antichrist he's going to be revealed then the lord will come so we know that these things must happen and so in our generation we're seeing i'm seeing with my own eyes people that have been in church that refuse to really be the real deal and how they fall away and they fall hard So here is the message tonight. There's two things I want to talk about. Really three points I want to hit. The first one is this. We've got to get back to the ancient path. Let me read you a scripture. Listen, some of you preachers out there, you ought to write this scripture down and really get this scripture in your spirit and preach it. Jeremiah 6, 16. Let this be one that you memorize. Listen to this scripture. Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls but they said talking about the children of israel at that time they said we will not walk in it let me read that again thus says the lord jeremiah's prophesying to the children of israel who were backslidden away from god and jeremiah prophesied and said this stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. So what is this ancient path? That's an interesting statement. What Jeremiah is trying to say there is the children of Israel were going after so many other things. They were going after other gods. False prophets were everywhere. 
In Jeremiah's day, there's a good possibility that Jeremiah was the only true prophet. And there were thousands of others saying, thus says the Lord, this, that, and the other. Now think about that for a minute. It really gives you a, a very profound respect for Jeremiah because it is very likely that he was the only true prophet of God alive at that time when he wrote this. And all these other prophets all through the whole land, oh, you're fine, you're right with God. God's going to bless you, Israel. Telling Israel everything that they want to hear. And Jeremiah is the one guy back here going, everything is not okay. Everything is not right with God. God is actually angry. He's not happy right now with you. You need to repent. And Jeremiah is the only one saying that. So what do they do? They hate the guy. But he was the only one speaking the truth. Now, many years later, you know, the nation of Israel will say, yeah, Jeremiah was right. But at that time, they hated him. The nation did as a whole. But there is a path that we've got to get on and stay on. Please hear me with this. There is a path of righteousness and holiness that the people of God have always walked upon that are his true people, his remnant. This is an ancient path. It's a path, spiritually speaking, it is a literal path that Abraham walked on that path. His sandals walked on that path, spiritually speaking. The men of old, prophets like Elijah, walked on that path. People in the early church, of course, Jesus did, but his followers, they found, he brought them to that spiritual path, and they followed after him, and they stayed on that path. Then you read down through the annals of history, through the church age and you read about men and women that found that path and even though everything around them was dark they followed the Lord some of them gave their life some of them were put in prison but they found that path of life and truth and they walked in that path and today it may be a minority but there are some people a remnant that have found that path and I really feel that God's God's not through with America God may be allowing America to come down on the world scene so that end time prophecy can happen, but he's not done. Just like in the days of Elijah, there was, you know, he was discouraged and Elijah was up in a cave whining and complaining to God, you know, I'm the only one left, Lord, you know, and he really felt it. He meant it, man. And God told him, said, no, Elijah, you're not. I have reserved 7,000. They have not bowed their knee to Baal and they have not kissed him. They are my remnant. You're not alone. And I believe in America that there's a remnant. There's not a bunch, but there's a remnant. And God has a, a, a group out there that are on this path, and they're really crying out to God. And if God would have spared Sodom and Gomorrah for 10 righteous people, 10, I believe God will spare America for his remnant that are crying out to him because there's a lot more than 10. We've got to get back to hear some things, our Hebrew roots and establish that are established in biblical symbolism like in the Torah and things like that. We've got to get back to our Hebrew roots and get rid of all these pet doctrines and traditions of men that, that are hindering. They're hindering what God wants to do. That was one of the greatest hindrances in Jesus' day was people were, were distorting the word of God by their traditions of men. And Jesus was angry at the Pharisees, and he stood up and gave them, he was yelling at them, gave them the seven woes. And he was saying, woe unto you Pharisees, you scribes, you hypocrites. 
And a camel was a very large, unclean animal. And he was saying, you'll strain out a gnat out of your water so your water will be clean. You know, a little gnat. He'll strain out a gnat, but then you'll swallow a camel. You see what I'm saying? And they were, they were distorting the word of God. And Jesus had to deal with those pet doctors. We need to get back to this path of our Hebrew roots. We need to get back to the path of the life of Christ in the early church. The book of Acts Christianity that was supernatural and powerful. The real life of Christianity. Not what you see right now, but the real, you need to get back to and really study the book of Acts. Some of you say, well, what book do I need to be reading right now? I encourage you to take some time, read the book of Acts and study out what was life like in the early church. That's what we need to get back to. Study revival history like we're doing in this church and Brother Zach's doing such a good job. But study out the path that you see people like the Wesleys and the Finneys and the Whitfields and all these others, that the Seymours, they found that path and they walked on that path. It's the same path. And of course, there are people that are living in that path today. And I've connected myself with a pastor that, that is on that path, but there's not, not all the pastors and leaders out there are on that path right now. I'm just telling you. Now, here's an interesting study. If y'all could give me your best ear about this. So as I'm going into something different here, but listen, the path of the Lord, is this making sense to people? It's a path of righteousness, holiness, purity, following God, living out the word of God, not lip service. You know, the Bible says their lips profess something, but their hearts are far from me. No, this is the real path of life, the path of the Lord. We've got to get on that path and stay on it. The second point I want to make is this. This is probably one of the most interesting things I've read in a long time. There was a man named Winky Prattney that lived at, I think he's still, maybe still alive. If he is, he's, he's older now. But he did a study on revival, tremendous study. Wrote a book that's considered to be a classic on revival. He brought this out, but he got this study from someone else. I don't remember who. But this is interesting, so listen to me. Now, we're talking about a, a sect. I'm talking about S-E-C-T, a sect. Now, <clears throat> whenever the nation of Israel as a whole was practicing the law of Moses, Judaism, okay? They were living in that, practicing that. When Jesus came and he had followers, there was a small group that had accepted Christ and followed him. They were being called a little sect in society because they were not going along with the norm. They, they were going in a different direction. They were following Jesus. So I want to paint a picture about what a sect is. It's a small group of people that are kind of at war, so to speak. Not that they're trying to be, but they're going against the grain. They're, they're not going along with what is normal around them. Jesus and his followers were not going along with what the Pharisees were saying. They, they seemed to be at war. Jesus didn't get up and declare war on the Pharisees. He didn't get up one day and say, behold, I draw a sword. Let's get the Pharisees. You know, he didn't do that. He didn't declare war on them. But it's just that his teachings were at war with what was the norm. And you can see it down through history. Those of you that are going to teach the word and those that are going to be in leadership here, I really want you to hear me about this. So a sect, a group, is a conflict group. They're at war with the norm, and they're wanting to break out 
of what the norm is. Now, we know that a sect can be good or bad depending on who it is. There can be bad groups like that that are weird. But throughout history, there's been a sect in society that really went after God with all their heart. You can see it down through church history. I'm going to give you an example. They were not content with typical church life. And because they wanted to be different, they wanted to get back to biblical Christianity without trying to be, they were at war with what was normal around them. Is this making sense to anybody? So here's what has happened. The typical church in society, when you look at just a normal everyday church across the board, you look out the overall church in America, I mean thousands of them, many of them dead and dry, not where they need to be with God, they seem to fit in with society okay, okay? They fit into what's around them. They have a set of rules, and they have something that they, they live by, but they're not really at war with anything. You know, they just kind of blend into society. But a sect that's really going after God without meaning to are going to be a conflict group. Because society is going to label them as being a bunch of radicals. And the church out there that's blended into society is going to look at them that they are radical, that they're weird, and going to label them all kinds of things. And without meaning to, this little sect, this group, is at conflict with people around them. But let me read to you this. It's really interesting. So throughout history, you'll see a group, a small group come together, a sect that begins to seek to establish some kind of code of values in a state of mind that's different than what's around them. They may be preaching, for example, like William Seymour about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. William Seymour goes in there in the first church he goes into, he preaches on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2, and they literally ran him out. Now, how would you like that to happen? You know, you're invited to speak, you speak, and the people that invited you literally run you out and ask you to never come back. But William Seymour, even though he was, I'm sure he was discouraged, he wasn't going to back down. He was a, a sect in Christianity at that time that was at war with everything around him because, by and large, nobody believed in the baptism of the Holy Spirit in tongues. But he had established in himself that he had a code of values in a state of mind that was different than what was around him. And he was not going to be swayed by what was around him. Now for this, they will claim divine authority. Over time, if you're not careful, it can become, let me just read this and I'll explain it. It can become an institution that starts accommodating what's around it. they begin to lose that, that radicalness, that fire that they initially had. And then it starts to become tolerated by society and they also begin to tolerate what's around them and they eventually just become a denomination, a formal shell of what it used to be, what it started out. At one time, well now it's becoming an old wineskin that the Lord can't use anymore. It's become just an institution that now feels like it knows everything when in actual fact it started out very humble, feeling like they knew nothing. 
it becomes wealthy and feels it knows everything but in actual fact it started out very humble it went from a mentality a psychology of persecution which probably kept them pure to now a psychology and a mentality of success and dominance many times they'll begin to try to dominate people around them you can see this over and over it moves from an emphasis of soul winning to now just being religious education so instead of rolling up their sleeves and getting out there winning souls now they're just will just sit here and we will teach you about how jesus won souls and it's like well let's let's get out there and win some souls you know but it becomes education based it moves from a high degree of congregational participation where everybody wants to participate and serve the lord and do something for god to where you see a very small percentage want to do anything did you know that if you read the parables of jesus that he said about laziness that they would be thrown into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth i didn't realize that jesus viewed laziness the way that he did i'm just gonna throw that out there all right it moves from being a fervor in worship i mean passionate worship to now everybody's just sitting there then enter in it's boring it moves from being positive action they want to be out there doing something. They want to be serving God to now passive listening and we just want the pastor to go out and do all the soul winning. But the fact is that pastors, scripturally speaking, are not supposed to be doing that. We're supposed to be equipping you to be winning the souls if you want to be biblical about it. Now, I love winning souls and I witness, but I'm just saying. All right, it moves from, listen to this one, it moves from relying on the Holy Spirit, the leading of the Spirit, to now running things like a business. Hello. And it runs from, it goes rather from faith in decisions to now also again running things like a business. So it started out radical. We're led by the Spirit. We're serving God. We're on fire for God. We're having to step out in faith to do things that seem ridiculous to the natural mind. Now, too, we're going to look at the bottom line of the dollar. We're going to do our basic math here. And if we just can't do it, we just can't do it. We're going to run it like a business. Well, the problem is, is that where's, where does faith fit into that? It don't. So let me give you a, a good example, although there's a lot. But let's start out with just the Wesley brothers man these guys were radical i mean they were awesome some of my heroes of the faith them and whitfield and others had a group they called them the holy club they found the path you know me talking about the path they were on the path and they they met together they were praying they were going after god with all their heart they were radical they were a little sect that did not fit into normal christianity at that time did y'all get this they were a little sect that did not fit into the normal christianity around them the lukewarm dry boring christianity they could not handle it they were hungry for more of god and wesley said in his diaries and you hear leonard Ravenhill all the time he he said my heart was strangely warmed he began to feel a heart a burning in his heart for more of god he was hungry he needed something and so in their prayer meetings they began they took it was recorded they took holy communion together and they said it seemed like god unzipped the sky 
and his presence just came down in that place anyway he touched them they they were set on fire here's this little sect that said we cannot handle this normal boring so-called christianity around us we've got to go after god so they got out out on the streets and began to preach this is a fact most churches well actually none of the churches would accept wesley in their church to preach even in his hometown where his father was a pastor that church even wouldn't let him preach there why he was too radical he had to preach in the streets people say well wesley you know he went out in the streets i don't think he initially wanted to preach in the streets i think that initially it happened because the churches wouldn't let him preach in the churches and he ended up on the streets but anyway him and and whitfield they decided look we're just going to go for it they went out and they began to preach on the streets and they started seeing so many people saved it led to the first great awakening edwards great revival they started seeing all these people saved so they start coming in and now all of a sudden there's this radical sect of society that's in the fires of revival and they're saying we can't fit into this normal boring lukewarm stuff out there we've got to have something from god and they were producing after their own kind they started having these circuit riders that would go out all over preaching the gospel these and they produced i think it was like a thousand preachers in wesley's day they were going out if i'm not mistaken they, they got on their horses and were circuit riders they went out and they would travel the landscape of this nation preaching the gospel changed society the first great awakening but now look at the methodist church today i love them and there's probably some of them in revival but what started out as a radical powerful move of god that god it was a sect it was at war with what was around it over time it followed this exact pattern they became an institution over time they began to fit more into what was around them instead of being at war against it not that they were at war like a fight but they just wouldn't they didn't want to be like it but pretty soon they begin to conform to that lukewarmness and conform to that boring dead christianity what they used to not be able to tolerate now they're tolerating gradually it becomes a denomination and only a shell of what it used to be it starts becoming an old wineskin the lord can't really fill anymore it's more of an institution that feels it knows everything where it was started humble now they feel like they know everything every denomination is way i'm not picking on the methods every one of them all these institutions feel and i'm not trying to be mean but they feel like we know doctrine you need to listen to us because we know what we're talking about we know doctrine okay and they want to teach you their doctrine because they feel like it is the only way and they went from a psychology of persecution to a psychology of success and dominance in their own mind to some degree it moves from an emphasis on soul winning to now just religious education let us teach you and it went from fervor and passion and worship to restraint and all these things here from positive action to passive listening from reliance on the holy spirit from reliance you know living by faith now to running things like a business and it's the same i don't mean to pick on the methodists because i really love them deeply i'm saying across the board every all of them are that all of christianity unless there's some radical group out there that's going after book of acts christianity willing to be different than everything else around them all of them all over the world have some in some way or another started to lose the fire and become like this are y'all hearing what i'm saying you know in other other nations they have different names for their denominations but it's the same pattern 
they started out radical to end up spiritually dead. And I believe that God wants to send revival back again to places like the Methodist Church and restore that. You know, he's wanting to stir up that fire that Wesley and them knew, and, and he's wanting to see revival again. He loves them. And I certainly don't mean to come across critical. I'm just saying it is a far cry from what it used to be. And it's the same way with anything else. Some of the mainline Pentecostal denominations go back to the Azusa Street Revival. That's where they were born. Does anybody here believe that they're anywhere close to Azusa Street right now? No. What happened? They used to be this radical sect that was going after God with all their heart, but gradually they become a denomination or whatever institution, or whatever you want to call it, they became something that's man-made. And they began to conform to that lukewarm dead Christianity and pretty soon it's just another thing is this making sense the way I'm explaining it you know what the problem is man control everybody say man control it was said about the Welsh revival and I'm not trying to pick on anybody I'm trying to give a lot of examples because I don't want anybody going well he doesn't like the Methodist man I love the Methodists. I really do I love I believe there's a heritage there that's phenomenal I'm just, I'm picking on everybody, okay? Everybody that's not going after God with all their heart, they need to be going after God with all their heart, and I'm picking on them. It said about the Welsh revival that God moved. Then Satan attacked the move of God, so God moved harder. Then man started to work, and the revival died. That's about sums it up right there. You know, the devil isn't going to stop revival. It's when man starts controlling the revival. Let me read that again because that's good. It said about the Welsh revival, God moved. Then Satan attacked it and God moved harder. Then man started to work and the revival died. That's what I'm trying to get at right there. The life of faith, the life of dependence on the Holy Spirit, the power of God, it dies out. When you look at the heritage and the history of many of these denominations and movements, um, I'm not trying to pick on any. I'm just saying, like, for example, the four square goes back to Amy Simple McPherson. You've got things like the Assemblies of God and the Church of God that go back to the Azusa Street Revival. And you've got all these other moves of God, like the Mes Methodists go back to Wesley and Finney and them. I'm sorry, Wesley. And you see that, and, you're, and you say to yourself, what happened? I love them all. I'm not mad at anybody. But somewhere they became an institution and lost the fire. They're no longer a sect that's at war with the norm. Now they're the norm. Think of the Lutherans that, that were a part at one time of the Great Reformation. They, they were literally running for their life from the Catholic Church that was trying to burn them alive. The, the Methodists, the Pentecostals, all these. Listen, things that are born of God... Please hear me about this because I believe that God is wanting to do something significant with River of Life. Things that are born of God must be, must, must be sustained by God. Things that are born of God must be sustained by God. I'm talking about revival here. It's got to be lived out in faith. God's never going to make it super easy. He wants us to have to live by faith. Sometimes I'm saying, Lord, why can't it be a little easier? Why can't you, you know, and it's because he's saying, I want you to trust me. I want you to step out on the water, even though the storm's going, the waves are there. I want you to step out of the boat on the water. I want you to be radical. I want you to step out in faith. What you're doing seems stupid. People are going to make fun of you. They don't get it. 
but I want you to step out in faith anyway. And he wants us to be dependent on the Holy Spirit, not our human intellect. When you start running a church like a business, you are so far from biblical book of Acts Christianity, you can't even imagine. You're not even in the same planet anymore. Your, your address is now way out there, man. There's book of Acts Christianity, which is total faith and dependence on the Holy Spirit. You are completely secularizing it. Now you're running it completely and totally the same as the world runs their secular businesses. No faith, no dependence on the Holy Spirit. I hope that it never, ever, as long as I'm here, as long as I'm with River of Life and all that, as long as I'm here, it's not going to be that way. I, when I come in here, I believe God, I step out for a move of God, and I'm dependent on the Holy Spirit. If he doesn't come, then I'm going to shut everything down. Y'all know me. I'll shut everything down, and we'll get down, and we'll pray. And if people don't want to pray, they can go home. Because there'll be a group here that's saying, God, what happened? <laughs> where, where are you? We're praying until you come back. Leonard Ravenhill said about a certain denomination I'm not going to name he said the glory left a long time ago he said they used to have it back in the days of the Azusa Street Revival and in the early Pentecostal movement but the glory left a long time ago he said that whole denomination out, out of their headquarters should declare a solemn fast and get on their face and shut down everything Sunday morning across the nation and have every pastor get their congregation to pray and fast and get on their face and ask God's forgiveness and ask him to come back again and send the fire now, if they would just do that, there's no telling what God would do. If they really would do that, can you imagine in the whole nation, if a mainline denomination declared a solemn fast among the, the whole nation, and that next Sunday morning, we're shutting down services. If you don't want to pray and fast, stay home. We love you, but we don't want you here anyway. We're going to get on our face today, and we're going to pray, and we're going to fast, and we're asking God to send the fire. And truth be told, when the fire comes, some of them ain't going to stay anyway. So let them go ahead and stay home and just get on their face, and they pray, and God comes. And I, I read this, and I put it on Facebook. I laughed so hard. You know, there's so many people that want to ride the fence. They, they, they want one hand in the world. They want one hand with Jesus. You know, they're... they're double-minded wishy-washy hypocritical whatever they want to ride the fence when the holy ghost falls we pray for revival the very first thing he'll do is he'll plug in that fence and electrify that fence it will fry their hiney friend they'll come flying up off that fence they're going to pick they're either going to choose god or they're going to choose the world but it, he's going to put a fire in that fence and that's i'm telling the truth I'm talking about revival. I, I hope I'm communicating this well in, in a right way. I'm trying. All right. Also, true biblical Christianity will always be at war against the world system and be hated by the world. If the world really truly loves you, you're on the wrong path. You better get off the path your own and you better seek Jesus. Lord, please help me find the path of life and truth because... If, you, if the world loves you, something's desperately wrong. Now, here's where I want to shift gears. So with that, let me close that point with this. We need to remain a radical group that is not in any way, shape, or form at war with somebody. That's not what I'm saying. But it's like the move of God is at, in itself at war with what is considered normal. So hopefully I'm conveying that well. We love everybody, but... If we ever get to a place 
where we're blending into lukewarm Christianity and the traditions of men and their pet doctrines and we're just another thing. We have, we've done what I just read. We've missed it big time and we better get on our face before God and pray and fast and ask his forgiveness and ask him to come again. Set us back on fire and get us back on the path because something's desperately wrong. All right, so let me shift gears with this, and this is how I want to start winding this thing down. We've got to have a deep love for God and a love for people. Jesus is our great high priest, and he has a tremendous burden for the lost. When Jesus came, the Bible says he came to seek and save the lost. He said about himself, he said it's not the, the, those that are healthy that need the doctor. It's the sick. He said, I've come not to those that, that are righteous, but I've come to seek and save the lost. And I believe that's the heart cry of Jesus today. And it's such a reward for his suffering whenever people get saved. Because that's the very reason he came and died primarily is to save souls. So I know there's sickness and, and deliverance and all that involved in the atonement. That's what I'm saying. But the primary thing is that people not perish but come unto repentance. And it's not God's will that anybody perish. He loves everybody. Jesus died for everybody. And he's calling all to come unto him. So here's what I'm saying about revival. When true revival is going on, people have a burden for the lost. And when revival is dying down, people stop caring about the lost. One of the ways you can tell when revival is really going and you really have Book of Acts Christianity is because you really, it really does break your heart and make you sad when you're out in public and you see all these lost people and it just, it, it breaks your heart. You, you know, you want to weep. You want them to be saved. And if you can ever go through, you know, several days and several weeks and not even care about the lost at all, you're not in a good place. Jesus is our great high priest and he, he has such a burden for people to be saved. In true revival, God changes our hearts to be more like his heart and just as he's weeping for the lost, we find ourselves weeping for the lost. All of a sudden, we have a tremendous burden that people be saved. The, the, one of the heartbeats of revival has always been souls. When revival broke out in Wells, the whole reason it broke out, Evan Roberts was having these visitations with God. He was, he was in his room praying, and he had a vision. And in the vision, he heard cha-ching like that. And he saw this hand. This is a true story. He saw this hand and it had a receipt on it that said 100,000 souls. He had just had an encounter with God and God told him, I'm gonna give you 100,000 souls. How would you like that? His roommate comes in and sees him down there weeping and praying and he turns to his friend and says, do you believe that God could give us 100,000 souls? And his friend said, man, I don't know. All of a sudden, revival starts breaking out in wells, and they probably had 100,000 souls within the first three to six months, you know. But my point is that was the heartbeat of revival, that souls be saved. It wasn't really other things. The primary focus was the souls being saved. That was the cha-ching. That that's what he prayed, and God said, I'll give you souls, and that's how wells broke out. Now, understand, I believe that when revival comes, God begins to change uh, the church to be like it's supposed to be. That's a part of revival, but I believe that really the primary reason of revival ultimately is that people be saved. 
The church has got to change. That's part of it. God wants to touch his people too. We need to be healed of things, delivered of things, set on fire. We need, we need the ministry. But the heartbeat is the soul's. When revival broke out in Argentina, it broke out because Carlos Anacondia decided he'd got to get out there and win souls, and he began to preach among the ghettos and in places nobody else would go, and revival started breaking out. And after revival broke out and all these people started getting saved and, and, and all that happened in Argentina, then after that, God raised up Claudio, and, and it began to be also a movement there for the Christians, but it started about souls. I believe that if we want a major move of God, we've got to have God's heart for souls. If, you, if you're indifferent about it, there's something wrong. I don't remember who it was. It was like D.L. Moody or somebody like that. One of those radical guys that you read about in history that said, if you don't have a burden for souls, he said, you're not saved. That's what he's, you know, he's saying, if you don't have a burden for souls, you're not saved, you know. But we do, we need a, we need a burden. We need to have God's heart. And so as we're about to see some tremendous things in the years to come, I believe God has probably seven years or so of just a tremendous revival that God's going to give River of Life. And he's wanting to bring in a harvest of souls. I mean, a, a major harvest of souls, supernatural harvest. But I, I want to have people around me that have a burden for them and are willing to, to do what it takes to see them brought into the kingdom and then disciple. Because that's God's heart. You know, it, it, we're responsible for this harvest. We're responsible to, to preach them in and to minister to them. So, here's some things about that. You and I cannot truly have a heart the way we need to have it unless God gives it to us. So don't, you know, think, well, I'm going to go conjure this up. We've got to get on our face before God and say, Lord, you give me your burden for souls. You set my heart on fire and put a hunger in me for more of you. It's got to come from him. It's not going to come from you. You're not going to be able to, to be the source of that. God's going to have to put it in you. And so ask him for it. That's one of the things that happens when people go to revivals many times. They'll get touched by God, but they come back with a different heart. All of a sudden, they're hungry for God like never before, and they have a burden for the lost, and they find themselves weeping for souls, and they're like, what's going on? What's going on is, is God put his heart in you. You know, you didn't have that before. And so what I'm saying is if you want revival, and there's, there's a line being drawn in the sand tonight in the spirit realm, I see it. And there's going to be people that, that if they don't really get things truly right with God, we're not going to see them much anymore. But those that are really going to go after God are going to find themselves going deeper into the tabernacle of his presence where your heart's going to burn for him like never before and you're going to weep for the lost and you're, going to, you're really going to be in a place of revival. And that's where we need to be. And God is going to draw some people that also desire that. And he's going to bring them in among us. All right, so Jeremiah 3, 22 through 25. God said to the people, return from their backsliding and I'll heal them. Now, here's the thing. Here's really what I wanted to get to and close with about a burden for souls. In intercession, I know some of you guys already know this, but I want you to hear this if you've never heard this. If you want to pray for revival, let me tell you this. It's vicarious repentance. I'm going to have to explain that, but you write that down, vicarious repentance. 
Vicarious repentance is this. You can say to God, Lord, forgive me for my sin. Change me, do a work in me. But vicarious repentance is when you realize, hey, wait a second. I am a part of Garland and Dallas here, the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. I live among these people. I am part of this society. And you go before God and you say, Lord, I'm representing not just myself, I'm representing the region, the city here. And I'm asking you to forgive us for our sin because we've sinned against you. And you begin to confess the sins of the region and you'll find that this, if you're really in the spirit, you'll find that there's a burden and a weight that will come upon you as you begin to really come under the weight of that intercession and you begin to confess, Lord, forgive us, Lord, forgive us for the backsliding in the church, forgive us for, the, for all the, um, you know, the sexual perversions and, and the abortions and, and, the, and the violent crimes and things that have been going on. And you really get under the weight of that. And what happens is, is God is using you to open something up for that region because he will honor prayers like that that you're not just praying for yourself you're praying on behalf of many others and that's how revival will break out just like in the case of edward miller i preached on it but see we all know about the argentine revival you know in the 80s and, and 90s so powerful but you know it started many many years earlier when edward miller and a small group of bible school students were praying and they got under the burden of the weight of the sin of argentina and there were true documented stories that the spirit of god was so heavy on some of those people that one person in particular laid in that position weeping and weeping and weeping for so long that there was a puddle of tears and it was it was like flowing out and that the guy said he couldn't even believe that somebody could cry that much. And it was the weight of the sin and they prayed and they stayed with it. And after a time, finally they felt that burden lift and it was, they had a prophetic word that God had given them Argentina. They themselves did not see the harvest right then, but God had already birthed revival in the spirit. And years later, God raised up Carlos Anaconda, he raised up others that would preach and there was that whole nation was shaken with the power of God the whole nation there were so many people during revival getting saved literally this is not an exaggeration there would be whole cities that would come to Christ the whole city there, there were so many people getting saved that some churches had to have church 23 hours a day and have a rotating schedule but to accommodate all the people getting saved they said at the height of the revival that more people were being, being born again then we're actually being born in the natural. Think about that. So it all was birthed in that time with Edward Miller and that small group as they were vicariously repenting on behalf of Argentina. Forgive us, Lord, in Argentina for all of our sins. We come to you, forgive us. And they began to get under the weight and they repented on behalf of the nation. And God heard them. And revival came. So here's some, some things to consider in your prayers. Number one, you've got to identify with the people. That's what I'm talking about. We have sinned. Not doing it accusingly like, God, they have sinned. Look at them. That's the accuser of the brethren. No, you have the heart of our great high priest 
You say, Lord, I'm an intercessor. Forgive us. We have sinned. Number two is agony. You begin to feel the burden that the Lord feels. Then you pray with authority. Why do you pray with authority? Because you stand on the authority of God's word. Lord, you promised in your word that if your people, not the world, your people, that's me, your people will humble ourselves and pray and seek your face and turn from our wicked ways, you will hear and you will come and heal the land you said it and so you pray with authority on God's word and then number four you have faith you stand in faith that God will honor his word and do what he said that's what they believe they believe God in Hebrides they prayed and they believed Finney prayed and he believed and then revival came you've got to pray but you've also got to believe that God is doing it you understand faith is a major factor you go in there well I hope that God might do something and you get that attitude it really hinders things you've got to go in there and stand on the promise of God's word I believe your word Lord I believe that it's your will that none perish I believe I'm praying according to your will that that none perish and you said if I pray according to your will you do it I'm coming in here crying out forgive us for our sins heal the land send revival and God will do it because his word says he'll do it you got to stand on that in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel pleaded with God on behalf of the people. God, forgive us or we have sinned. Nehemiah did the same thing. It's important that we have these vicarious repentance prayers. Even today, God wants to redig wells of revival. There's places that in times past, New York area, Finney had great revivals there, Rochester and other places. There's places like in California with the Azusa Street Revival great moves of God and you'll notice that Satan comes in behind those moves of God and tries to throw a lot of nasty dirt on top of that well of revival doesn't he, he tries to cover it up real good but you know what if if people are really led by the spirit I believe that they can redig that well but they're gonna have to do it in prayer and they're gonna have to do it the way I'm talking about with vicarious repentance and let him redig that well in prayer it's prayer that will redig it and the Bible says that the King James, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So what that is, it's, it's not just this passive thing. Effectual fervent is you're really going after God. I mean, you're crying out with all your heart. And the Amplified says the prayers of a righteous man or woman makes tremendous power available, dynamic, and it's working. So your prayers have power. And James use the example of Elijah because Elijah prayed that it not rain and it didn't rain for like three years and then Elijah comes back and says it's going to rain and he begins to to pray and it says that he he got in like a birthing position but he began to pray and cry out and all of a sudden the cloud the size of a man's hand but he was in intercession the intercession is that birthing position is the reason why that's in the Bible because he was Paul said, I'm again in the pains of childbirth until Christ be formed. It is literally an agonizing pain until it is birthed. It really is. And you don't read, I love Michael Brown said this in Revival. He said, you don't read a, a book on how fun it is to have a baby. There's pain. 
but the agony. I remember hearing at Brownsville, there was times the Spirit of God would come into Brownsville and there would be such, a, 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 the Holy Spirit as a spirit of intercession come in and you would hear even little children weeping and wailing in the Spirit. I mean, it was tremendous. And, and, and the leadership there knew, don't quench this. Let God move. And then you'd hear the little children weeping and wailing and beating the floor and crying out to God and they were birthing through that, that prayer, they were birthing souls. You gotta understand those souls were brought into the kingdom. Somebody paid the price of prayer. And sometimes when we're seeing people not be effective in the ministry, they haven't spent enough time in prayer to really see things open up. Sometimes the hindrance is a lack of prayer. And I believe that there's been a lack of prayer for so long it's like rain on dry ground. It just soaks it up. But as we keep praying, keep praying in this region, even though there's been a lack of prayer and even, th even though things have been that way, probably, I don't know if, I don't know of any, but I, there may be some, but I don't even know of any other ministries that I know of that, that are really having a deep groaning and travailing in intercession. Maybe there are. I, I could be wrong, but I just haven't seen it. But you see, if we keep going after God and keep in that intercessory mode, it's birthing souls in the kingdom. And so getting that burden for the lost. And what I'm praying, what I feel tonight is this about the fire of God. I really feel like last week. Some people are not as hungry and desperate for God as they need to be. And I believe last week there was some prayer about that. But the two prayers that I encourage people in River of Life to pray is this. Pray that God will put a desperate hunger and a fire in you for him. Let, Lord, let me burn for you. And then number two, give me your heart for the lost. Those two things right there will help to keep you because it is a pure heart that keeps people. God looks at the heart. Even if you're imperfect and you've had your struggles, if your heart is really sincere, God will work with you. It's when people don't have a right heart that's when things start getting messed up in their life because that's what God's looking at. He's looking at the heart. Somebody, you can look at the outward and say, man, they're messed up. They got a lot of issues. But their heart, God sees the heart. Whereas somebody else looks like they got it all together. They know, they know how to put a good show on at church, you know. But their heart is desperately wicked. God sees that. All right, so here's what I want to do. I want to lead people in a prayer tonight that, that God set us ablaze. How many want to go to a new level? I'm being serious. I feel like God, and I feel this Tuesday, prophetically, there's going to be some kind of a, I see like a, for the lack of a better way of explaining it, like some kind of a veil or a layer that's going to be like penetrated through up to another level. And I believe that it's because of tonight, because of the prayers we're going to pray tonight. And I'm going tonight, I'm going to anoint people specifically to be consecrated to go into the holy place. If you're really serious about God, you're really serious about going deeper, I believe God's going to take you deeper. But here's what I want to do. I'm going to lead people in a prayer that God set us ablaze and give us his burden and change us and give us his heart. God has to do it. That's why when I preach this way, I'm not preaching this way in a condemning way. Nobody's going to leave out of here feeling condemned. I'm preaching this way, letting the Holy Spirit convict all of us and say, hey, I want to have more of a burden for loss. I want, to, I want to be more on fire for God, but I realize that God has to put it in me. He's got to do it. So let's all cry out that God increase that in us.
Amen? All right, here's a mistake they made in Azusa. In Azusa Street Revival, the Holy Spirit's power and presence was so strong that they got their focus too much on the Holy Spirit. Leaders, remember this. Elders, remember this. Help, help me to remember this. In Azusa Street, the Holy Spirit was so strong that they got their focus way too much on the Holy Spirit. And Frank Bartleman came in, he was an intercessor, and told him, guys, the Holy Spirit has come to glorify Christ. You need to get your eyes back on the Lord and not focus too much on the Holy Spirit. You see what I'm saying? The Holy Spirit comes to glorify Christ, and Christ comes to glorify the Father. That's just the way it works. So when the Holy Spirit comes, he doesn't want all of the focus completely, totally on him all the time. He wants to point us to Jesus. Remember that. And here's what I encourage people to do with this right here. Live as though it's your last day. I really feel like I need to start preaching that more. What would you do tonight after we're out of church and we have the opportunity to witness and all that and you're in church tonight and you have the opportunity to pray. If you knew for sure you're going to be dead tomorrow. You're, you're positive. God told you something. You knew I'm, I'm dead tomorrow. If you knew this is the last day I was going to live, how would you live your life? Think about it. Would you be like, I'm, I'm definitely witnessing somebody not, you know. I'm, somebody's going to hear the gospel. Would you pray like, Lord, I'm going, I am going to really make sure that everything's right. I'm going to go after God with all my heart tonight. How would all of our lives be if we really could live not saying that you're, you're freaking out, I've got to do all this, I made a list, I've got to do this. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying, how would it be if you really knew that this was your last day? I would be at peace about it. I, there would be a part of me that's excited. There'd be a part of me that was sad about certain things, but there'd be a part of me thinking, I'm going to see Jesus tomorrow. You know? But there would also be this, this soberness about me that I want to make sure that I make the best of this day. So, that's where I'm coming from. Tomorrow when you wake up, what if that was your last day? How would you live your life? You would live your life holy. Let me tell you, you know why the Bible predicted that in the end times that there would be people that would be mocking the coming of the Lord. Where's this coming of the Lord you keep talking about? Things just keep going on and they're just mocking and mocking it, mocking the rapture, mocking those things. The Bible predicted that would happen. Did you know that where... The coming of the Lord is preached. The rapture is preached like it's supposed to be. There is a holy fear of God. Because people are thinking, man, Jesus, come tomorrow. I better not be playing games. There's a holy fear of God. And you read the parables of Jesus, and he talks about watching and praying. I'm coming like a thief in the night. You better be found faithful when I come. If I put you in charge of my household, and you're, you're getting drunk and beating up people, all this stuff. Remember these parables? He said, I'll cut you in two and throw you where there's outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he warns people, you better be ready when I come. And there's a, there's a sober mentality of those that hear that Jesus coming is near. And I'm telling you, he really could come anytime. There's no other scriptures to be fulfilled about the rapture, about the Lord's coming for the bride. But there's no other scriptures to be fulfilled. We know there's some in regards to his glorious appearing, but he could come at any time. So we need to be living like this is our last day. Making sure things are right with God. Making sure that we're being found faithful, doing what we're supposed to be doing. Because the rapture 
is something that is there as a grace for those that have been found faithful to the overcomers those that have been really righteous and ready for his coming you understand that there's a distinction made there's people that are really ready and people that aren't so anyway let me lead you guys in a prayer tonight now I want to make sure and keep recordings going because people that are hearing this you're hearing this I get this all the time from other nations you're listening to this wherever you're at we need to live as though this is our last day so everybody that wants to have God do a work in you tonight, I want you to pray this after me. Say, Jesus, forgive me, Lord, for any lukewarmness or any compromise. I know I can't do this. It has to be you. But I humble myself tonight. And I stand on the promise of your word that you give your grace to the humble And I'm asking you, Lord, that you would set my heart on fire and let me burn for you. Put a hunger in me for you, Lord, and for the things of God. And give me your burden for the lost. And I ask you for the grace to live as though this was my last day to make the most of every opportunity. I humble myself and ask you for that grace. And I believe tonight, I receive it now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's shut down recordings. Wow. And I feel a tremendous anointing. Doing a study on the end times. I'll make this really quick, but this is so amazing. When you look at seed time and harvest, you look at the harvest cycles in Israel. <clears throat> They're in the first part of the year at Passover. It's called the harvest of barley. It's, it's, that's the harvest that's coming in. Rather, it's the harvest of barley. And the way they sift that, they take a pitchfork and they, they go into this threshing floor and they throw it up in the air. It's caught up in the air. And the wind will blow away the chaff. That's the barley. That's how they, they sift barley. They thresh it in the threshing floor. Then, 50 days later, <clears throat> at Pentecost, it's the wheat harvest. And wheat has to be crushed. It's got a hard shell around it. They, they, would, they made like these sleds type of thing and the men would stand on it, be pulled by an animal and it literally ground and crushed the wheat so they could get the grain out. Then the third harvest was the grapes, the fruit harvest at the time of tabernacles. That harvest, when you read the Bible, Jesus coming down to crush the grapes the grapes of his wrath talk about him crushing the grapes and you see that there's, there's blood that's being shed there basically is the picture. And that has to do with the last harvest. And listen, at the, under Jewish law, they were not allowed to glean 
the far ends of their field. If you had a big field, God told them the outer part of the field, don't glean it, leave it for the poor people. Because there's going to be poor people, there's going to be foreigners that'll travel through here and, and they'll have food to eat, leave it for them. So the Jews were not allowed to. Listen to this. The first wave of harvest are going to be those that have really made themselves ready. It's the rapture. It's being caught up in the air. It's the first fruits of harvest. Every harvest, there was a first fruits that was waved before God, lifted up in the air, waved before God. It's like the threshing, caught up in the air. But how many knows not everybody's going to be ready? The Bible's crystal clear. There's going to be a lot of people left here. They're gonna, those that are left, that's the second harvest. There's a grinding. There's a crushing. They're going to be going through the crushing of the tribulation time. But those that will be faithful to the end, the Lord will save them if they, they're right with God. They may have to be martyred, but they, it's going to be rough. But they're going to go through that crushing, but that's another harvest. And when Jesus comes back and he slays those armies, remember reading those scriptures? And his, it says his vestures dripped in, or covered in blood. It's because he's coming down with wrath, I mean, to deal with the armies coming against Israel. It's going to be, I wouldn't want to be in that army that's opposing Jesus. And it's going to be a crushing. He's going to come down and he's going to, the grapes of wrath. But he's going to send out his angels to go out and gather the elect. That's the final harvest. That's the gleaning, the gleaning from the corners as they've been scattered. Isn't that powerful? You see end time events prophesied in the cycles of harvest. But I don't know about you, but I don't want to have to be gleaned at the end when the promise stands for the bride to be with the Lord at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I don't want to be somebody that's playing games and have to go through the crushing of the tribulation time because I wasn't found faithful. The whole promise of the rapture is for those that have been found faithful to the Lord. They're faithful to him. They're his bride. They've made themselves ready. I want to be ready when he comes. Lord, I thank you. I pray tonight for a deep work in people. I'm waiting on the Holy Spirit being patient because I feel tonight in the spirit, as I said two other times already, I feel there's a sword in the, in the spirit and God is de dealing with something in the spirit realm and he's going to break through tonight and, and deal with some things. Some people are going to go deeper in him, but there's a line being drawn and God's dealing with some things. And because of that, when we come together Tuesday, I believe there's going to be a whole nother level. So here's what I want to do. And we started this last night with the young people. There was a real call to go deeper. And anointing people, it was really powerful. There was a deep, deep, deep consecration unto God. And what I'm going to do, this is kind of what I feel led to do. Brianna, if you could help with this. I want you to, to go back there and help, but if you could just quietly start it real quiet but that revival fire cd number one and it has some stuff on there that's really powerful but it'll, it'll lead into to a song send the fire 
but just play it so quietly you can barely hear it until later we'll pull it up okay but those that are serious with God that's the call tonight okay you're really serious with God to go deeper and it's really neat because I feel like a lot of the leadership is here to hear this word tonight and you're really wanting to go deeper it's got to begin with us for it to begin in a family it really needs to begin with the husband or the father it really needs to for it to be in the church it has to begin with the pastor if the pastor don't want revival revival's not going to come okay you're just going to have to write Ichabod and go somewhere else and find a pastor that wants church you know revival in their church but it's got to begin with the leadership just pull it way down where you can barely hear it okay I don't want it over me in fact if you could fast forward it to where there's this singing to send the fire but those that really want to go deeper in God you're you're hungry you're wanting God to take you deeper in his presence than you've ever been and here's another prophecy this is it and we're gonna pray but y'all please hear me with this pastor John Paul prophesied that there would be an anointing that would be so strong that the anointing there's a scripture he read in the Old Testament about the anointing and this this specific word for power he said had to do with the ability to to go up to the next level it was like a power of the Holy Spirit that enabled somebody to go up into a level of freedom that they never could before and I believe he prophesied that to me and prayed over me and there was an impartation I feel that God is wanting to release an anointing tonight along with a deep consecration that will help you to break out of where you were to where you need to be so if you've been struggling in certain areas the power of the Holy Spirit will help you to break out of that because in Isaiah 10 27 it says the anointing will break the yoke see or destroy the yoke is the actual translation but a yoke is something that weighs on the shoulders it weighs you down but the anointing will cause you to break out of that and it'll be destroyed off you that weight is gone and now you can rise up and begin to walk in a freedom that you couldn't before that's what I believe God is about to do he's going to deepen the consecration unto him the holiness sift cut out what needs to go but deep consecration and then he's going to release and anointing to break into what you need to break into freedom victory so if that's you tonight and you really want to break into freedom I felt tonight I was supposed to pray for people that want to go deeper so if you want that tonight let's go ahead and just play that send the fire and if you want prayer tonight just start kind of gathering in we may have to move some